young 24-year-old that didn't know a thing and uh, let me learn underneath Pastor Jeff and appreciate that uh, for those years of ministry with him. And now to be able to share God's Word with you again, it's just been a blessing for uh, these 10 years to serve you and to uh, lead us in being able to hear from God and to follow Him. And uh, we're glad to be able to start this new year uh, with a new sermon series called uh, Teach Us How to Pray. Teach Us How to Pray. Uh, there has been kind of an explosion in FCBC over the past couple of years of uh, people wanting to pray more. Uh, there has been a peak of interest uh, in prayer and how to pray, and we all know that we need to pray. Uh, at many times of us, we, we feel that we want to pray, uh, but I think the question still remains for many of us, and that is how to pray, right? Uh, how That Matthew gives us the context. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 this morning. Matthew gives us the context, and Jesus begins to answer the disciples' request to teach us how to pray by offering a corrective. Instead of telling us how we ought to pray, he actually begins with how you are not to pray. And so just, I know that we're all trying to memorize the Lord's Prayer, that that's our next scripture memory. Uh, Wendy made a nice little, uh, uh, man, the uh, laminated. Words are going to come slowly this morning, all right, uh, but we're going to get through it. Uh, she laminated this nice thing you can put on in your fridge, you can put it in your car. Uh, help us as a church memorize the Lord's Prayer. Many of us already have it together, and when we memorize passages of scripture like that, sometimes we forget the context, Right? The context is the Sermon on the Mount, the longest sermon that Christ gave. It's almost like his manifesto. It's the longest recording of Christ's words all in one segment. And the Lord's Prayer is offered as a model. This is how you should pray, right? It's not something that we just recite mindlessly, but it is a model and it helps categorize for us things that we should be praying about. But it is offered as an example of what not to do, okay? I mean, against what is not to be done. And so that's how the Sermon of the Mount and the Christ in our Lord's Prayer begin, is by we have to learn first what not to do before we learn what we are supposed to do. And isn't that the normal Christian life? We have to repent before we believe, right? We have to put off before we can. Okay, we have to make this response this morning or no one's going to make it. Right? So we have to put off and then we have to do what? Put on. We have to eject before we can inject? <laughs> eject before we reject? Yeah. Uh, eject before we inject. Those are part of the things that we have to do. And so uh, this morning when the Lord says, how are we supposed to pray? He gives us two ways that we are not to pray. We are going to learn through this sermon series that we are no longer going to pray as orphans. We're going to learn how to pray as children. No longer are we going to pray as aliens and foreigners. We're going to learn to pray as citizens of the king, right? We're going to stop being superstitious in our prayers, abracadabra-like in our prayers. If we get the right formula, will it open up God's storehouses? And we're going to learn to pray in the context of a relationship. So we have to eject the bad before we can, what, 
inject the good. And so our master teacher, Jesus, here, he gives us two case studies. You guys familiar with case studies? He kind of lets you in on, on two different kinds of people. And, and through telling this story or, or kind of calling people out, he's going to show us there are some problems in our prayer life. The first group of people that he calls out in Matthew 6 are these ostentatious, these flashy, these showy Pharisees. They are all about the religion and their externals. But he compares them in our next group of people to the heathen who are more mechanical, who have more of a superstitious prayer life, who think that if they can just say the right words or or pray long enough, that it will guarantee them a right answer. But here's Jesus' point. Don't be like them. And that's the context of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount says, whether you are religious or whether you are a pagan, Christians are supposed to be different, right? Well, let's just think about that for a second. If you were raised in the church, I just came back from Virginia, and down south, everybody is a Baptist. Okay, who was raised in a Baptist church? Okay. Man, you guys all from the south? <laughs> okay, uh, but, but down south... If somebody asked you, what religion are you, you would just say Baptist. Up here, okay, if you're French-Canadian, what religion are you? Catholic. It's just part of, it's part of who you are. That's what you think. You identify yourself that way, but you don't really oftentimes, down south, you don't really oftentimes have a relationship with Jesus. You're just comfortable in the church. You grew up in it. You don't know why you attend any more than it's a social thing that you're supposed to do. And you pray when there is social pressure on you to pray, like before meals. And you say the same prayer every time at meals. And you just go through the formalism of that. That's the religious person. Then there is the pagan who thinks he's going to be heard for as many words or for uh, the, the right formula in there. But the bottom line throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount is that Christians are supposed to be different, whether it is the dead church or whether it is the irreligious people. The difference is not just what they do on the outside, it's why they do what they do. It's an issue of the heart. And so we're going to look at two errors uh, this morning in reference to prayer. The error of the Pharisees is that when they pray, they are more interested in themselves than to the one to whom they are praying. They are actually praying to themselves. They're actually worshiping themselves. Where the pagan, when he prays, he thinks that his prayers are effective by the manner in which he prays or the words in which he says, you got to say the right thing. you got to rub that lamp the right way uh, to get your wishes. And so... Let's go ahead and look at our first point this morning. We are not to pray to impress people. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to read verse 1 through 8. Verse 1 is the summary of the whole passage. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. That's the summary of the whole passage because Matthew 5, if you read that for the Sermon on the Mount, is all about how you are supposed to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If you think that you haven't committed adultery but you've lusted in your heart, Christ got you. If you think that you haven't murdered somebody but you hate somebody in your heart, it's, man, 
Christ just ups the level of what he expects for us. But as you begin to up the level of your righteousness, people say, okay, you know what? I'm going to do that. I'm going to perform to that degree. I'm going to try to be as perfect as my heavenly father is perfect. And guess where the temptation now comes? That when you are trying to be as righteous and as holy and try to live to that law, now the temptation comes with, I'm doing it so everyone can think that I'm holy and righteous. We exchange the goal of actually being holy and righteous for the lesser goal of being seen as holy and righteous. You get what I'm saying? We would rather people think, oh, wow, that is a man of prayer. That is a man who gives to the church than to actually think that what? We're godly, to actually do this to the Lord. And so verse 1, he's summarizing the whole thing, and he's going to talk about almsgiving, and then he's going to talk about prayer. Verse 2, thus when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. He moves from giving now to prayer. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning that our confidence uh, in this new year stands uh, in you that we come here uh, in routine. We we thank you that we uh, have that routine built into our hearts, that we desire to worship you, that there is a desire that that when we pray, I thank you for a church that that wants to hear sermons, that wants to be challenged, that wants more opportunities to pray. Lord, uh, I thank you, Lord, for your word and how it challenges us. Thank you that you hear our prayers. Thank you that you draw near to us as we draw near to you. Thank you that we can approach you as a father, that we can be your child, and that you know our needs even before we ask. And so, Lord, this morning we have many physical needs, but our most important need this morning is to feed us from your word. Speak to us through your Holy Spirit this morning. May the word come alive. May we find them as desirable. May we eat them. May they bless us. May we be like that man who is planted by the rivers of living water, who brings forth fruit in his season because he meditates on your word day and night. We ask all this, Lord, not for our name, but for your name, and it is in your name that we pray. Amen. So we are not to pray in order to impress people, and we see the warning here, the warning we see in verse 5. He says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Notice that hypocrites love to pray. Isn't that interesting? The religious people love to pray. 
Even the pagans pray. Everyone in this passage prays. Something that almost, I think, every religion prays in some kind of way. People today, there's an expression, right? As long as there are tests in school, there will be prayer in school, okay? People pray. But notice uh, their posture. They love to pray, but they pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, and they love to do it standing up, right? They're standing, their posture is one of, of confidence, of standing before the Lord. And notice where they like to pray. They like to pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. They love to pray when it is in a public place. Now, we have to know something of our ancient Near East culture for the, uh, the Jew at that time. It was normal uh, and part of religious life for a religious man to lead the congregation in worship much like we have men in our church do here, and they would stand uh, behind the Ark of the Law and they would pray publicly. And in the place of prominence, the place of being up front, he could succumb to the temptation of praying to the audience and not praying to God. Everyone that has led in public prayer, whether it's at a dinner table for a family gathering or up here behind the pulpit, there is that temptation to pray for those that are listening and not to actually engage God. It was part of his religious duties to do that. Also in the ancient Near East, there were times of public fast where everybody would do it. And there was also daily afternoon sacrifices in which a trumpet would sound and it would remind you to go to the Lord in prayer. And some men would, wherever they are, stop what they were doing right then and offer up a prayer. But may I suggest to you that even some men were so ingenious that they would plan their day to just so happen to be on the corner of Sinner in Maine every day at noon when the trumpet blasts. And all of a sudden, they felt compelled to pray right there. Isn't our heart very tricky about that? They knew that that was a part of their religious life. And they just, every day at noon, happened to be on the corner right there when they had to offer their prayer. Now, so far, do we have anything inherently sinful? Is it wrong to pray standing up? I just did, so I hope that's not leading you in sin, okay? Is it wrong to pray publicly? Okay, I just did that too. All right, so two strikes. So what exactly here is the Lord warning us against? The one thing that taints all of these others, praying publicly, praying standing up, it is a matter of the heart. It is a heart issue. Listen to why they want to do this. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. And what's the key word there that tells us the reason? That. That they may be seen by others. You see, they love to pray. But it's not really a prayer that they love or the God to whom they are praying. They love to be able to have the opportunity to parade themselves around to be seen as a righteous and holy person. Here's the principle this morning. Behind their piety lurked their pride. Behind their piety, behind their righteousness, behind their holiness lurked their pride. Now the tendency is for us to think that this only happens to the Pharisees. This is only Jesus calling out that, that group of religious people back then. But you know what? We at FCBC are just as much in need of corrective prayer as the disciples were. And at least the disciples asked, Lord, teach us how. 
I'm going to be honest with you real quick. I thought the easiest thing to do this year was to lead a sermon series through prayer. You know, Pastor Jeff, he modeled for me. He goes, don't change anything. Just keep it steady. We've got a good thing going. Just, just keep it on the straight and narrow. And I'm like, yes. I mean, there's a lot of wisdom. Don't change anything the first year. We already changed the bulletin, all right? Don't change anything else, all right? And so let's do a sermon series on prayer. You can't get in trouble if you lead a sermon series on prayer. I mean, who doesn't want to learn how to pray more? But this whole message is about how we're praying wrong. And I began to realize that this sermon series is going to be dangerous because it is going to call us out, like all of God's Word does, on things that we do mindlessly, even our public righteous prayers. And what we see here that just gave me nightmares all the way while I was gone is that sin follows us all the way into the presence of God. Sin is not something that just afflicts us when we are far from God, like a prodigal. I think as a church, we often think that sin is in the gutters of life, and it's those people that are the drunkards or that are the addicts. It is those people that are sinful. And the longer that you are a Christian, you begin to think, you know what, I don't do as many of those things anymore. And what we see here is that sin is something that's so terrible that it would follow us even to the gates of heaven if it was allowed to. Because the context of being a hypocrite is in the context of praying. He doesn't say, you know what, it's the hypocrites that murder. It's the hypocrites that get a divorce. It's the hypocrites that are angry. It is the hypocrites that commit adultery. He doesn't say that about them. You know who he's talking about when he uses the word hypocrites? Church people. Religious people. And so the essence of the biblical teaching on sin is that sin is a matter of the heart. We don't want to think of sin as just in terms of only of what you do. It is far more terrible than that. It is actually self-worship. It's worshiping ourselves. And we worship ourselves so much that we can take God's means of communicating with Him, of worshiping Him, prayer, right? We can take the very avenue that God gives us to worship Him, and we can prostitute it, and we can make it about worshiping ourselves. We can kidnap God's means for us to engage a holy and living and righteous God and make it all about ourselves. And so if you want to see how heinous sin is this morning, see a man in prayer. That should shake all of us as Christians. We think, oh, if you want to see someone that's really in sin, look out there. No, what Christ saying, you want to see someone in sin, look at a man even in prayer. See self intruding in even when he bows his head to talk to God. There is, he's tempted to think about himself. Have you ever done this? You think how holy you are for how often you pray? We think how holy we are for how long we pray. We even keep track about it. Even if you're not praying in public, sin can tempt you in your secret prayer closet to love the thought that people know that you're in your prayer closet. Sin can tempt you to think, you know what? This church knows that I'm a man of prayer. When we're not even praying publicly. Isn't that heinous? 
Isn't that despicable? Doesn't that get right to the heart of it? I want you guys to know a pet peeve of mine. A pet peeve of mine is when pastors always come out as the hero in their illustrations. We had a great model in Pastor Jeff of humility, and I think we need to continue that. And so I'm going to share a story with you where I'm not the hero. I am certainly the zero in this story, okay? And it's all about prayer. You have to go back with me to my junior year at Liberty University in Greek class. Now, you have to know something about this Greek class. My professor, Dr. Gutierrez, was the man. He was new on staff. He was young. He knew the Greek New Testament. He was awesome in his teaching. I even went to his church on Sunday morning. He was a 10-talent Christian. You know those guys? They can do it all. Okay? He knew Greek. He could preach. And get this, he even led the church in music. Okay, yeah, I know, right? I mean, I am never going to attain to that guy. I idolized him. I wanted to be respected by him. I wanted to be around him. There was just a, a, a train of young Bible students that would just follow this guy around campus, okay? We just wanted to hang out with him, to see if we could buy him lunch, okay? I mean, college students were willing to pay him when we had no money to go out to lunch with us. And so in one day in Greek class, he's just sharing an antidote a story about how he was just blessed the prior day by a student when he said, hey, would you mind praying to open up our class? And the student began praying with these words. Lord, it is just so good to talk with you again. And he shared that as an example of how encouraged he was, because in a religious university, you can just get those kind of, Lord, we thank you for this class and this opportunity. We pray that you'd be with Mr. Gutierrez, that he would just be able to just, to just, 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 just teach. And we just thank you that we're just here and that you're just God and that you just do what you do, okay? And just, and just, and all those just prayers, okay? And, and you, you get used to that. And he was blessed by this student who prayed out of a context of a relationship and had already met with God in the morning. And it was supposed to encourage us and warm our hearts. You know what? I thought nothing about it until a week later when I was late to Greek class. I was a minute late. I mean, just a minute. Now, the way the classroom was set up was all the chairs were that way. There was a lectern. Here he stood, and then here was the wall. But you walked in through a side door, and you had to, my chair was all the way over there. So I had to walk behind him. Nothing more awkward than being late to class, squeezing by your professor, okay? So I, I'm trying to get over to the seat, and right when I'm about ready to squeeze by him, he goes, hey, Josh, would you pray? You know what I did? Bowed my head. I said, Lord, it was great to meet with you this morning in personal worship, and it's so good to talk with you again. I don't know what I prayed about the rest of the time, but that blood-churning feeling of guilt and shame of prostituting myself to be seen as the kid that he admired, and I used the same lingo, just so that my professor would think well of me. I, I couldn't end the prayer fast enough. I don't remember what we learned in Greek class that day. I sat in there writing a note of apology and slipped underneath his door. We can turn intimate moments of worship into something they were never intended to be. My heart is so tricky that it can corrupt 
that it can kidnap God's means of worship and use it to worship myself. The worship of God in prayer disintegrated into worshiping myself. We can take ministry, we can take service, we can even take prayer and use it as a means to build up ourselves in the eyes of others. And so Jesus warns us, don't be like the hypocrite when you pray. If that doesn't persuade you that you need God's grace and salvation this morning, I don't know what will. We have a mighty foolproof argument here that salvation is needed, that we need a new birth, that you can't turn over a new leaf, that you can't just start doing a couple righteous things to find your acceptance with God. You need a whole new you because we can't even pray and get it right. And look at their assurance here at the end of the verse. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. They wanted a temporary reputation with man instead of a relationship with God. And isn't it temporary, your reputation with people? How quickly it changes, right? They wanted that over a relationship with God, and Christ says they have it. So how is Jesus going to solve this problem? He gives a solution here in verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. He says the best way to overcome this is through secret prayer. You see, nothing destroys prayer more than side glances at people on maybe they're noticing me. And so Christ says here the best way to enrich your prayer life is to be in secret and just to be aware of God's presence. So in other words, here, here's the principle. The secret of prayer is prayer in the secret. Bottom line, the secret of prayer is prayer in the secret. And here's why. Think about it like this. What's the one thing that you can do as a Christian that is just for God that nobody else sees. I was thinking about this this week. What do I do that I do just for God that nobody else can say, wow, look at what Josh is doing. Is it preaching? Nope. Is it helping my neighbors? No. Is it serve projects in the church? Is it giving? No, because even the treasurer knows what I give. What's the one thing that I can do that, that is only for the Lord that only he sees, that nobody else would see? Prayer. And so now we are to pray just to meet with him, just to desire him. Now, some of us see this and think, you know what? I am never going to pray in public again. All these men that we've lined up to lead service, they're like, I'm not praying again. Are you kidding me? We've got to lead communion. There's a couple guys that are going to pray for communion. They're already thinking like, uh-oh. <laughs> All right, and if not, they are now. And, uh, and so don't misunderstand me. Jesus is not forbidding public prayer, right? If he was forbidding public prayer, did he keep his own commands? No. He prayed publicly. In fact, in John chapter 11, he prays at the tomb of Lazarus, John eleven forty one says, Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Now, why did he pray that way? Verse 42 answers, it was for the good of those that were listening. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. He already had a relationship with God and he prayed so that others would hear him so that others would believe that, that he was sent by the Father. And so Jesus saw public prayer as a means of discipleship, right? I'm going to pray this way 
so you can see that I'm sent and that you can have increased faith and confidence. Guys, we should be praying publicly together. The early church prayed publicly together in Acts 1.24, in Acts 3.1, Acts 4.24, etc. So Jesus is not condemning public prayer. He's condemning the desire to be seen praying publicly. It is a heart attitude that loves to pray only to be seen by men. And the solution comes by when you pray, realize the presence of God. Be aware that you are encountering the living God. Wouldn't that change everything? Instead of being aware of all the people and trying to get the right phrases and the right names and and the right order of things and to sound spiritual, what if we prayed as a church and we actually were just all thinking about who God was? We, We should say to ourselves, I am now entering the audience chamber of the one true God the Almighty, the Absolute, the Eternal and Great God, with all of His power and might and His majesty, the God who is a consuming fire, the God who is light in whom no darkness is at all. Man, when we start thinking about who God is when we pray, that is so much further than people that come to you afterwards and say, you know what, that was a beautiful prayer. Thank you for praying, that was a beautiful prayer. That's not a compliment that should actually bother us. That they're judging their performance instead of being engaged in prayer with us. So I want to challenge you. Next week we have a Sunday school hour. Okay, There is no adult classes. I think even senior high is in here. And we're going to have a topic called how do we pray together as a church? It's going to be a discussion. Okay, How are we as a church going to get better at praying together? Where it's not just one guy up front praying and we're all just mindlessly kind of going anywhere else. I think the analogy that I'd like to use is, is, a, is a duck. It looks like the duck is just kind of just gliding across the water. But underneath that, right, he has those legs that are paddling. And it looks like it's just one guy praying in church, leading us in congregational worship. But you know what should be happening? All of us should be praying with him, saying amen, yes, Lord, yet engage actively. It is work to pray together. So we're going to come back next week. We're going to discuss how to pray together so that all of us are taken on the wings of the prayer into the presence of God, not sitting there thinking, wow, I really like it when Steve Smith prays. I really like it when Josh prays. You know, I really miss it when Jeff prayed. I think we're missing something there, don't you? According to God's word, we are to come into the presence of God. And the promise here is that, you, that when you pray in secret, your Father will reward you openly. And I would even challenge you this week in your small groups to talk about what are some of the blessings of prayer. What are some of the rewards of prayer? The word here, when you go into your room, it is the exact same word that is used for storeroom, which implies treasure. Beloved, hear this promise your Father who sees in secret will reward you. There is treasure in prayer waiting for us. So you've heard the warning this morning, don't be like the hypocrites. I pray that you would hear this morning that you are never immune from spiritual danger. Whether you are spiritually depressed this morning or whether you are flying high spiritually, you are always underneath temptation. The temptation will change based upon whether you're down or whether you're high, but it is still there. And the danger that Christ has been addressing through His Word this morning is that when you let your good deeds, because you're flying high spiritually, 
When you let your light so shine before men and you live that biblical life of Matthew 5, 16, the temptation is to now take those good deeds and instead of doing them to the glory of your Father in heaven, to do them so that other people would see you. We change true holiness into just desiring that other people would think that we're holy. And so just be aware that God's demands for holiness can create the opportunity for hypocrisy in the church. So let me ask you some questions for self-reflection. Do I pray more frequently and more fervently when alone with God than I do in public? Do I pray more frequently and more fervently when I'm alone with God than I do in public? Do I love the secret place of prayer? Is my public praying simply the overflow of my private praying? Or do I just turn it on when I'm in public? We just know what to do because it's that time to do it. Or have we talked to God throughout the week? What do I think about when I'm praying in public? Am I a spectator to my own performance? Oh, yeah, I I weave that whole theme in there. I said those right words. Are you praying to God or are you praying to men? These questions aren't to leave you in guilt and shame. Right off the bat, I'm just going to come out and say it. Prayer is hard. Prayer is going to be a hard thing. And to admit that prayer is very hard can be encouraging for us. Just to admit, Lord, this is going to be a tough series to apply. To not think about myself when I go into my prayer closet. That's a tough thing to do. And so if you're struggling greatly in this, just know that you're not alone. But allow this message of how not to pray to open your eyes to who you really are. This passage is probably one of the most searching and humbling passages, I think, in all of God's Word. But it is good to see yourself as who you really are because it opens you up to God's grace. In uh, Augustine's prayer journal, it's called Confession. He says this, listen to this. Before you know what to pray for and how to pray for it, you must become a particular kind of person. Before you know what to pray for or how to pray for it, you must become a particular kind of person. What does he mean? He means this. You must account yourself desolate in this world, however great the prosperity of your lot may be. You want to learn how to pray? Prayer is learning who you really are before God. Prayer is learning who you really are before God, and who you really are before God is spiritually helpless. And it is the religious hypocrite that has no idea who he is before the living, holy, and righteous God. He has no idea, and so he is willing to talk about himself and to think about himself and do worship himself and desire to be seen by other people as a prayerful man that he forgets that he is talking to a God who sees in secret. And I just want to encourage you that the longer that you walk with the Lord and the longer you stop doing these bad things, the stronger that temptation is to play the hypocrite. You begin to suddenly trust yourself instead of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You begin to suddenly think, you know, because I've been so good, the Lord answers these prayers. Because I've lived this way, the Lord hears me. In light of communion, which we're going to take right now, I want you to hear this. If you serve Christ faithfully for a thousand years, your acceptance is still based on one thing, Jesus Christ. Self-worship 
Self-righteousness destroys prayer. And if you go over to Luke 18, we have the picture of the Pharisee and the publican. The Pharisee stands in the corner and says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like one of these. And in Luke 18, Christ says, it is truly the humble man, the spiritually helpless man, who won't even look up to heaven, but bows his head, beats his chest, and says, have mercy upon me, a sinner who has his reward, his reward in heaven. Which one are you? FCBC is not free from self-worship or self-righteousness. We're not. As you come to communion, where does your worship of God disintegrate into self-worship? You know, I haven't missed a prayer time. You know, I've been consistent with my devotion seven days a week. You know, I pray for four hours a day. You know that Martin Luther prayed for four hours a day? You know how we corrupt that? We think that if we pray for four hours a day, we'll be a saint like Martin Luther. But can I challenge you? I doubt that Martin Luther had a time clock tracking how long he prayed. He prayed for four hours a day, not with an eye to the clock, but with a heart that says, I must commune with God. And that's what made him a saint. Not the fact that he kept track of how long he prayed. And do you see how subtle that is in our lives? Where are you all too secure of who you are? Where are you so judgmental of others because they have not arrived at the plateau to which you have arrived? This should bring us humility as we come to the Lord's table and say, Lord, even in prayer, I bring self and sin in. Have mercy upon me, a sinner. Men, if you want to come up, we'll take our time in communion.